0: Keeping up with the research and then applying it to your clinical practice is hard. That's where we come in. I'm Sarah Cavallaro. And I'm Mim Rodder, and we are paediatric OTs
1: who, through this Research and Reality podcast, aim to help you better examine the research and then interpret that into the practicalities of reality for the families you work with. Well hi Sarah welcome to another research and reality and we've got our now for some something completely different article where we've been doing feeding but now we just wanted to do a more general article and this one is pretty relevant to our podcast and the aim of our podcast which is
0: nice. Yeah, it sure is. Today, the article that we're going to be reviewing is titled Systematic Review of Determinants Influencing Knowledge Implementation in Occupational Therapy. So as Mim said, really relevant to us because in this podcast, we are really hoping to be able to help you as clinicians implement research knowledge in your practice. It's a doctoral thesis from the University in Quebec, Leval, the Laval University, uh, French and English-speaking authors. Marc-André Pellerin, Marie-Yves Lamontagne. I think is how I would pronounce it. Probably my accent is terrible. And interestingly, those two authors are the, ma- the first two are the main authors because during the study, they often reference their initials, so mm-hmm. M-A-P and M-E-L, and they've done a lot of work together finding the articles to be included in the systematic review we've also got annabelle yeah guy and valerie pullen so they're the four authors i'm glad i'm glad
1: when i said oh you can do the title and the authors i forgot that they might they're all in french yes. pronounce because yes, just from it. yeah pronounce but well done well done Thank and you. if the authors hear us we're sorry <laughs> we
0: can correct Thank your you. names at a later date we'll interview you on the podcast and you can you can tell us your name in your beautiful french accent
1: so the journal it's from is the australian journal of occupational therapy so again lovely to have one from french-speaking quebec in the australian journal and it was published in august 2019 and the current impact factor as we've discussed in the past impact factors change but the current impact factor I believe of the Australian Journal of Occupational Therapy is 1.85 and if you want to learn more about impact factors listen to one of our previous episodes where we asked Dr Anu all about that. So the
0: clinical question Sarah. Yeah and actually I really loved this article because they were so explicit with their PICO influence the outcomes of knowledge implementation strategies with occupational therapists. So to spell the PICO out, the population is occupational therapists, the intervention is any knowledge implementation strategy, the comparison they say there's no comparison being of interest, and the outcome they're accepting any outcome. And the study design of interests are experimental, observational, qualitative or mixed method studies. So they're the ones that we have included in the systematic review. And we'll talk about that a little bit later in terms of how they got to the number of articles that they did. That they wanted to
1: understand how OTs can more quickly put that evidence from the research and apply it to clinical practice. I think that's sort of ultimately the goal. As you say, we to do
0: that in the future.
1: That is where we all want to get and they sort of wanted to know what can impede and what can speed up changes in practice based on the evidence and as we say I think it's really relevant to this podcast and in the systematic review the authors identified four things that they wanted to do one they wanted to identify the determinants so that's the deciding factors in the knowledge implementation strategies. They wanted to work out how the study's determinants were documented, they wanted to establish how OT's attitudes, knowledge and practice was influenced and they wanted to document how the determinants influenced the knowledge implementation. <laughs> Lots of words there, but it's the beginnings of saying, hey, how can we get research into practice?
0: When we had a look at the theoretical background for this, obviously in research articles, there is always a background or a literature review to Mm. introduce it. And I have copied and pasted this little, so that organisations and individuals can put strategies in place in order to implement knowledge more effectively. Yes, and I think they were saying that in
1: some other professions, they've looked into it, but they haven't done a lot specifically in this area in occupational therapy.
0: And they were talking about... Knowledge translation. So, knowledge translation covers, I guess, the whole range of evidence based practice. Mm-hmm. And they categorized knowledge translation as diffusion, which is the passive spread of innovation. So, when you publish in journals or present at a conference, people read it without maybe doing anything about it. So, it's more passive. Dissemination means that you put and planned efforts in to persuading target groups to adopt an innovation, an innovation, and that might be through things like journal clubs or professional development or a knowledge broker or a knowledge research network. And then implementation is the active and planned efforts to mainstream and innovation. And certainly when I worked previously in a hospital, um, things like audit and feedback on chart audits are done quite consistently there in order to look at practice change and measure practice change.
1: Yes. And they mentioned in that section as well, specific tailored interventions. And I was trying to figure that out a little bit. So if, if you can give me some insight or,
0: or if you're think not sure. I probably a thing that I relate to most is specific clinical guidelines that come out. Mm, so for instance, yes. when I was working at the MARTA, some specific Clinical guidelines came out around working with children with autism. And so as a group of clinicians in the hospital, we did a chart audit of the interventions that we used over a 12-month period that were in line with the new clinical guidelines. And I know the adult OTs in the same hospital were looking at that for stroke. So (sighs) new stroke guidelines came out How do we kind of facilitate that, make sure we're doing that? How do we audit that? How do we keep that up? So they're the sorts of things that I think that we're looking at in implementation. Excellent example. And so we know from a systematic review in 2004 that diffusion changes, diffusion strategies, which are those ones where you might just. Publish a journal article or presented a conference are not likely to result in behaviour changes of a clinician when used alone, while knowledge implementation strategies could be more effective. So I guess from my point of view, that's certainly the change that I've seen in workplaces across the years. When I first graduated, there was a lot of talk about EBP and reading journal articles versus the last kind of five years where it is all about knowledge translation and knowledge implementation and changing the title of that but also changing the way that we do things to be more project-based versus just reading a journal article and that's the end of it. This pairs so well with the aim of our podcast because we want it to
1: be another way for that research to reach clinicians and to inform their practice more quickly and they talk about putting that research into practice being a slow process and then obviously the negative impact this can have on their on the patient care as well in the article i got a little bit confused between terms of knowledge implementation and knowledge tra- translation they do provide a definition for knowledge translation from the world he- world he- world health organization So knowledge translation is the synthesis, exchange and application of knowledge by relevant stakeholders to accelerate the benefits of global and local innovation in strengthening health systems and improving people's health. And I just really like that definition. Obviously, you'd hope that you'd like a definition from the World Health Organization. So the idea that it's about creating, sharing and then putting into practice the knowledge. And I like the idea that they mentioned it's knowledge coming from your local community or your local innovation and the global community as well and so my understanding of the difference between knowledge translation is that knowledge translations covers those three areas that you were talking about the diffusion the dissemination and the implementation but then this study because they were saying that the implementation sort of is the most effective way to change not that the other way is don't have their place but that is the most effective way that's what they wanted to look more specifically about and also in that sort of literature review introduction they talk about three systematic reviews examining the knowledge implementation strategies and it was allied health professions including ot's pts speech language pathologists dietitians and pharmacists like the different studies that they cite there had different combinations of a profession and they talk about those articles using this consolidated framework for implementation research. So the CFIR, and we will refer that to that throughout, like that's what they used to analyze the different articles and it, The idea of this framework is it tries to give consistency to the terms and definitions, and it also has some tools for data collection and analysis, and they reference the website if anybody is interested. So it's cfirguide.org, and in there there's a nice little diagram showing you how the framework works. And we will go into this more, especially in the results stage, but they list that five main influencing factors that influence you translating that research into practice are the intervention characteristics, the outer setting, the inner setting, the characteristics of the individuals involved and the process of implementation. OTs, we do like our frameworks. So I quite liked that framework to be able to think, okay, what is influencing how I'm practicing? Is it the inner setting? Is it the outer setting? Is it the actual intervention that I'm using? And the design quality, it's a systematic review, so quite high up there in the evidence hierarchy that we've talked about before. But interestingly, they talk about it being qualitative. Uh, do you want to mention the ethics and human protection side of things,
0: Sarah? In the article, they talk about the protocol was not formally registered because the review was carried out as part of a doctoral examination and part of a PhD project. However, in line with university policies, the thesis committee supervised the conduct of the review and ensured the protocol was rigorously followed as designed. So I imagine for it to be able to pass as a PhD project, um, you know, it, it would have been done quite rigorously. And certainly, as we'll talk about coming up, they were very clear with the search terms for how mm-hmm. they looked for the articles and they were very clear about why they excluded some of the studies as well and we can talk about that a little bit later on yes participants and sample size you can go first yeah so the selected studies were conducted in a wide variety of practice settings so that included rehabilitation units community settings and schools and various practice domains so They just say, for example, paediatric, geriatric, psychiatric, involving various health conditions. And they eventually included 22 studies in the systematic review and the publication date that they searched was January 1996 to June 2019, which I assume is when the study was done. Using their search terms, identified a total of 2,015 documents 1215 of which were rem- which remained after removing the duplicates then they reviewed screened the titles and the abstracts 86 full text articles were assessed for eligibility and eventually 22 were included in this review yes and reading 86 articles is big i was i was they thinking that they that only that did the titles <laughs> and the abstracts Mim, so don't feel too intimidated <laughs> because
1: I was like "Wow, well, I, I find it hard enough reading an article a fortnight <laughs> that's what they do research and so that idea that for a systematic review it's less about how many participants but more about how many studies and the quality of those studies and exactly as they say they had specific criteria they used the prisma method the preferred reporting item for systematic reviews and meta-analysis and so we've come across this term before and I think that would be a good question for Dr. Anu yeah. at the end of one of our podcasts. And I also thought it would be really interesting for our listeners. They use 12 different databases that they search through for the articles. And I've heard of some of them, but others I haven't heard of. I'll just list them now because that might help our listeners to consider these databases when they're looking for their own evidence and articles as well. So they used Medline, Embase, CINAHL, AMED, PsychInfo, Cochrane Library, First Search web of science, ProQuest dissertations and theses, ERIC, education source and sociological abstracts. And the great thing was they did have the support of a professional health librarian. Yeah. And it would be nice if we could all have access to one of those. And I know, I think if you work for Queensland Health, you can have access to one of those. And if you work for some of the unis, I think you have access. But it would be nice to know in private practice who you could, who you could go to to assist when you're looking for some of that. So maybe our Facebook group could help us out in there.
0: I think if you're a private practitioner, you probably... Can find the articles one by one as you need them. Like it's not often as a private practitioner that you would need 2015 articles. Yes, that is why they used the databases. More often, you can see an abstract. For me, I can see an abstract on Google Scholar. And then if I feel like it's going to be really beneficial to my practice, I can purchase that as a one off article.
1: So our listeners know how they found those articles. The search terms were knowledge translation and determinants of practice and occupational therapy. And what was very interesting is they also searched for synonyms around that Mm -hmm. and this whole knowledge translation. They actually found 70 different terms that were generated for knowledge translation. So it just shows that it's a big area and it's an area that's sort of emerging, as you say, evidence-based practice has been around For a while and it's a very common term but this knowledge translation, knowledge implementation, I think there have been a number of different terms around that so it is an interesting article to look at.
0: And I think that's where the CFIR comes in because obviously they're trying to standardise language around that so that that makes it easier for researchers doing this sort of work. Yes, and even easier for clinicians
1: to sort of, when they come across a term, to go, oh yes, I've heard of that term, instead of, oh, wait, I've heard of that term, but is that the same anus, as this term? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And all of that mm-hmm. confusion as well. And so how they collect the data and their analysis, if you do get hold of the article, there's an Excellent table showing all the study designs and types used. And again, I feel like I'm just listing things at the moment, but I think it's sometimes helpful just to hear. So they used experimental and observational study designs, including randomized control trials, non randomized control trials, quasi experimental, pre post studies, prospective and retrospective cohort studies, case controlled studies, analytical cross sectional studies. And they also included qualitative and mixed method studies in their consideration as well. Again, referencing our section at the end of each of our podcasts where we asked Dr. Anu, I know she has listed a number of those studies and I'm actually quite excited over time to explore and become more familiar with all of those design types so that when I do look at a study, I go, oh yes, I do know Some of them I know, but I do know what a case control study means. So I think that's the other helpful part of this podcast that hopefully you'll get more familiar with the research terms as well. And even though I mentioned that in the literature review, they looked at three systematic reviews that looked at other professions as well as OT, the participants had to involve OTs or OT assistants. For the exclusion criteria, they didn't include editorial comments or theoretical papers so they included all of those other papers including qualitative ones but not editorial comments or theoretical papers
0: a couple of them that were excluded at the final cut mim there's a really nice kind of flow chart a couple of them were and it was really
1: good as you say that they were very thorough about how they picked those articles and really they clear that really it really well.
0: clearly showed why articles were not included which is great mm.
1: and then with respect to the interventions, how they decided which articles to review they were pretty broad with it so generally any implementation of any new clinical practice but they excluded the implementation of evidence-based practice skills so obviously that's a good thing (laughs) implementing evidence-based practice skills but because they're looking at actual interventions and actual clinical practices they didn't want it to be more that general how do you look at research or how do you implement research if we ever do a research on ours we wouldn't have been included on that paper but other than that it was a very nice general one as we said they excluded other studies that included other professions which I think is helpful because that's what they were saying that they wanted to look at how this relates to occupational therapy specifically but I think it would be interesting to see how other professions do this as well I like this fact a little quirky fact because the researchers are from Quebec they include studies in both French and English and I like that that was mentioned and I do know a lot of research is translated into English because I think they quote a number of countries that it came from but it's just nice to know that mm. are they included ones in French as well. To determine what made it into their final selection they used again very long term they used the Cochrane effective practice and organization of care review group data collection checklist. So again I won't go into detail but if you want to find more about that it's the website is, is epoc.cochrane.org. They analysed each study qualitatively, as we mentioned, and among their analysis, they looked at the direction of the change of clinician's knowledge, so whether it get, was a positive direction, a negative direction, or no change. And this, I really liked how they broke this down. They, they looked at how it changed clinician's knowledge and they used three definitions. I'll put my own little interpretation into this, but I'll read the definitions first. So knowledge change, so whether it was a knowledge change, and this was the development and expansion of a health professional's knowledge base. And so I view this as, did it make them think differently? So that idea of the head knowledge. And then an attitude change was number two. So clinicians' agreement and acceptance of the evidence and its perceived clinical applicability and the motivation and sense of self-efficacy to adopt evidence-based practice. So I view that more as like the heart change. So it did it make the clinician feel differently about the evidence and their practice. And then finally, the third one was practice behaviour. So that's the process or actions used by a health professional to provide care for their patients. So I've, I view this more as the change in behaviour. So do they do things differently? And I think that that practice behaviour is a culmination of knowledge change and attitude change. And so I don't think knowledge change is a bad thing or attitude change is a bad thing, but ultimately we want our practice behaviour to change or our practice behaviour to be confirmed that what we're doing is right. Just for people's information, they used a narrative synthesis method to develop an overview of the findings. And I think I'm just going to leave that for Dr. (laughs) Anu
0: to answer what a narrative is. And I guess, no, narrative is. is telling a story Mm -hmm. and synthesis is analysis. They're telling us a story of their analysis in the article. You know, some systematic reviews that you look at, they have tables where they list all their data, their data numbers and all the articles, and they haven't done that in this article. They have simply listed it. Exactly as they say, there was lots of different
1: methods when we listed all the methods, but 12 were quantitative Five were mixed method and five were qualitative out of those 22 articles.
0: In terms of credibility of the data, they don't analyse that. To me, the data seems to be credible as they have clearly listed search terms and search Mm. dates. We've already talked a little bit about the exclusion criteria. You know, to get from the 86 down to the 22, they've listed reasons for why they were not included. I think too, you know, having 22 articles in a systematic review is pretty good. I did do a bit of a Google in terms of strength of systematic reviews versus number of articles to see if I could figure that out a little bit. But Realistically, most of the evidence in practice websites are saying you can do a systematic review with only two or three articles. So it depends on the quality of those articles. To get 22 to analyse gives you pretty good credibility of data, I would imagine. I do like when they mention the
1: limitations of their study as well. And so we mentioned one of the limitations of hadn't formally registered the protocol. They, and I'll read this here, that the first author identified and screened the articles alone. Only the selection was done jointly by the first and second authors therefore we cannot be sure that some relevant studies were not excluded in the early stages i just like when they identify hey of course it's great we did this slightly we us. would have done this slightly differently or we should do this slightly differently right. next time
0: and it helps um, us realize that they're just real people too right so in terms of the results the results are interesting basically what they are telling us is the sub constructs that are most often mentioned in the literature And how they were documented. So Mm -hmm. there's actually not a lot of information in the results that I could see, Mim, that talked about whether things were positive or negative or no change. They mostly were talking about how many times things were mentioned, some Mm -hmm. constructs were mentioned. They've listed here the seven most mentioned constructs and talked a little bit about what that means and whether there were positive or negative factors. The first subconstruct is adaptability, and that's the degree to which an intervention can be adapted to meet local needs. And if we read a research article and it doesn't apply to our population or it doesn't apply to our setting where we're working, then we're much less likely to implement that intervention in our caseload, right? In this construct, they talk about the fact that team difficulties negatively influence practice change. With them highlighting a non-judgmental environment. Maybe if you are having team difficulties, then that is less of a non-judgmental environment, maybe more conflict in the team about the best way to approach things. To me, that's fairly obvious that team difficulties would negatively influence practice change. The third subcontract is leadership engagement. And again, I think it's an an obvious one. When our leaders are engaged in knowledge implementation and when they're supporting clinicians to engage in knowledge implementation, then that's going to be a positive factor and a negative factor if they're not engaged, right? Yes. The fourth subconstruct was available resources, and that included allocating time dedicated to knowledge implementation, Mm -hmm. appropriate staffing levels. You know, if you're short-staffed, then that impacts on your time available. Funding, again, you know, if you have a lack of funding in your organisation for that, then that's going to impact your ability to engage in learning activities. A rigid time schedule and lack of access to computers or databases obviously negatively impact knowledge implementation the fifth subconstruct was knowledge and beliefs about the intervention that's what you were talking about before mim with your you know your kind of understanding it but also does it fit with your values and mm. when you were talking about that before i was really reflecting on this huge body of work that's going on in the pediatric ot space at the moment around neurodiversity affirming practices Myself and a lot of other clinicians that I talk to are really jumping on board early for the changes that we want to see in the neurodiversity affirming space. And I think one of the reasons that is happening is because it the sixth subconstruct was around the individual stage of change. And that is probably a number of factors. So, you know, that is probably where you're at as a clinician. I think it's harder to change, maybe not, but As a new grad, I I wonder if you're just thinking about I've just got to do the right thing and see the right people and, you know, all of that sort of stuff versus being a bit later on in your career where you've got the headspace to be able to think about your clinical reasoning. Interestingly,
1: I was thinking I was when you were talking about that, I was thinking the opposite. I was thinking sometimes the new grads are open to change, motivated and, and enthusiastic. And- us old fogies are like ah, no, said it in our ways. But I see what you mean that often we have the headspace to try and yeah do this. And again, just plugging the podcast, but that's what we're hoping in this podcast that will
0: not just change our practice, but it will change our listeners' practice as well. Absolutely. And then the last sub-construct was executing, and that refers to how the knowledge implementation was done. Mm. So that included things like coaching sessions or interactive short courses, online courses, and this actually was the construct that was most mentioned. And interestingly, educational meetings were the most frequently used. Again, we would need to look at CFIR in terms of, you know, do they have a definition of educational meetings? Yes. And I guess that's where they were looking at the synonyms. What is an educational meeting? You know, I've seen that done. in a number of ways across a number of workplaces but really it's about what is the evidence and how do we move our practice to be more in line with that as you say like educational meetings was the most one mentioned but some of the other ones
1: mentioned were communities of practice education materials educational outreach visit visits monitoring the performance of the delivery of healthcare. as you've mentioned before that audit and feedback sort of loop and the tailored intervention and local consensus processes. And most of them, there was a few that just used one of those strategies, but most of them used a mix of those strategies for that knowledge
0: implementation. At the end of the results section, they have these kind of key points for occupational therapy. The key points are that there are many determinants that influence knowledge implementation, including organisational determinants, which can frequently play a role. And we've seen that in some of the constructs like leadership engagement, mm. like, you know, resource availability. There were seven determinants, which we've already mentioned, that should be considered in knowledge implementation projects. And I think that's a nice key takeaway because if you're an organisation or an employer like me who is looking at how do we increase the knowledge implementation of our clinicians, then it's good to be able to look at those seven constructs or seven determinants future research and knowledge implementation should consider using standardized tools to assess the influence of implementation determinants. And I guess that's one of the reasons why there wasn't a lot of information in there about which were positive and which were negative. If the original research article hasn't used a standardized tool to assess influence, then obviously the systematic review can't analyze that to any high level
1: degree exactly as you say it gives this framework to be able to delve into that and also educational meetings was the most common but it would be interesting to know which in future research whether that's the most effective Mm, or whether we do need to go
0: convenient.
1: yes exactly we need to go okay well no let's make sure that leadership engagement turns out to be more important or the learning climate or whatever that I really loved that they listed those seven areas and I even think I agree with you as an employer but even as an employee we can say okay I don't have much influence on the learning like we do have influence on the learning climate but I didn't have a lot of influence on the learning climate but I can work in another area to try and expose myself to Absolutely. more of that knowledge implementation. Yeah. I think the other thing that was interesting in that sort of results section was that they looked at the quality of the 22 studies and they said they range from poor to good and they used their mixed method appraisal tool MMAT. And I'm, I'm thinking we should look into that a little bit but <laughs> yeah. to help us you analyze
0: It it obviously only applies to studies with mixed methods. Yes. You think some qualitative, some quantitative, yeah.
1: Yes, yes. But I just thought that would be an interesting tool because they actually came up with some percentages, as they say, this study because of the variety that they look at and because of the variety we'll look at as well there won't be one tool that will help us every time but yeah it might be look good for us to look into that as well
0: but are these results applicable to clinical practice yes absolutely i mean i think we know that there are seven determinants now that influence knowledge implementation and i think knowing that as you say mim as a clinician to be able to look at right well If there's some things happening in my workplace that are not great, what are the other determinants that are up to me and how can I influence those? I guess for me personally, you know, I'm an employer, I employ occupational therapists and I want to understand what I can do to enable knowledge implementation and what factors contribute to this quarterly team days where we have knowledge sharing but also goal setting for implementation and Mm -hmm. I want to be really practical on those days about what tasks are we going to do how do we measure this how do we let our families know what the change is because we know that we nowadays we have really educated consumers. And in the paediatric NDIS space, we have consumers that are long-term clients at times. And so we want to, I want to help my clinicians implement knowledge, but I also want the families that we serve to be able to understand why there might be a change in our practice. So how do we measure that is probably my next
1: Yeah, so which is not quite what they meant, like exactly as you say, that this is sort of an early study. They haven't sort of found ways to quite completely measure that. But as you say, they have seven practice areas. And I also even liked how they looked, again, it's not completely new information, but the way they've worded it is excellent. The way they've looked at the three ways of change, so knowledge, attitude or practice about the neurodiverse terminology. And so I do think that can be a little bit more challenging, that attitude change, because sometimes it's admitting that some practices you've done in the past may not have that evidence behind them, and we have seen things come and go. And then ultimately, even though I think the knowledge and the attitude are both valid to get out, you don't actually always have to have practice change, but ultimately how will this, what will I do differently in my practice because of the information I've found?
0: Because we have to create, create systemic change. And even if you are a sole practitioner, you're a private, maybe a private practice with just you, yourself and you, there are things that you can do to systemize knowledge implementation into your practice create better outcomes for the people that we work with.
1: yes and that's it and on the other end even if you sort of just a cog in a big organization and go oh, okay I just have to do this training because they've arranged it yeah uh, sometimes you don't have as much
0: motivation intrinsic motivation Yes, intrinsic yeah.
1: motivation because somebody else has arranged it going okay well actually what can I take out of this is yep. this trying to change my knowledge or my attitude or my practice and what can I take out of this yeah for myself as well so yeah I like that sort of looking at both yeah I think we're done for that article that was a really good now for something completely different article yes yes absolutely and our next catch-up will be with Pippa Yes, so exciting. Yeah, so
0: exciting. We've got our list of questions and please jump onto the Facebook group and let us know what other questions you've got for Pippa. We'll have a registration available. If you'd love to come along and hear Pippa live and be able to ask her some clinical questions live, then we'd love you to register for that session and come along.
1: And details of that will be at the end of this podcast. Thanks, Bye.
0: everyone. And talk to you soon, Mim. I
1: It's time for our Ask a New section where we ask Dr. Anu Bhakti from Monash University a research question to generally expand our knowledge. Dr. Anu, we're back again and I hear you've got an exciting trip tomorrow to Paris for a conference. So just tell me a tiny weeny bit about why you're going to Paris. Oh, it's the World Federation of Occupational Therapy Congress
2: that I'm presenting my study and which is our B care program that we run for parents who have recently received a new diagnosis so we offer a support program so i'm going to present that and it's very exciting
1: very good i expect a uh souvenir no i don't expect a souvenir. <laughs> but, Definitely. Um, i expect you to eat lots of french baguette it is yeah very good <laughs> oh yeah if i could
2: Let people know about the podcast.
1: Oh, yes, great idea. Yes, around the world, sounds great. So it's very lovely just to hear a little bit about what you're up to and the amazing things that you're doing. Uh, But this week, we're going to ask because the article that we reviewed this week was a systematic review. And so i was hoping that you might just give us a brief rundown on what is a systematic review.
0: Yeah, I think
2: it's one of the scariest things. I think <laughs> meta-analysis is a bit more scary than systematic review oh. that I find in my practice. I will refer to a lot of the work of great authors who've done lots of work on making it easy for people to understand what's a systematic review. So there's a really good book, How to Read a Paper by Trish Granalke. And um, we use that a lot in our teaching as well, but I still refer to it a lot when I have to give little talks and stuff. So I, I might have to get of that myself. That. Yes. So if you want to know more, I would say go to that book or there's another really lovely paper and it's by, I think, it's by Natasha Lennon and Beverly Webster. And that's called Who is Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf? And it talks about making sense of results in RCTs. Oh, wow. So I really recommend people to go and look at the, this kind of evidence that's already there. But let's get to what is a systematic review. Hmm. So as you know, the name suggests it's a systematic way of reviewing a lot of articles. So the good thing about a systematic review is it's an overview of lots of studies, primary studies. It always has an objective or an aim, and it uses some materials and methods in which it's done. So it's systematic. It's conducted according to methods that can be reproduced and they explain very clearly what they've done so the process is clear and they'll usually give you a flow diagram of how they've done it what they've done how what was the aim how many databases did they search they'll have a clear eligibility criteria so inclusion and exclusion criteria for studies they'll apply that they'll justify why they excluded Spanish studies, for example, or why they excluded different language studies or why they excluded the years. So some might be, we're actually only looking at this theory, which came in 2010. So all the yeah. papers before that were excluded. So things like that. Then they will assemble the most complete data set and use a number of reviewers. So it's not done by one person. So if, if a systematic review has just one author, there's no such systematic review. Okay. So it's the work of a group. So the group will all be reviewing before it even goes to publication. So at every stage, it gets reviewed by a number of people. Then the results get analyzed and there is a synthesis of the data. Because if I was looking for randomized controlled trials, for example, each study would have something similar, but each study would have something different. When you synthesize that data, uh, you have to do it in a way that it makes sense. So that's what the systematic review does. They do follow, like you would have heard of Cochrane collaboration. It kind of stores the, all the articles in that. Uh, if We can understand what that, what they've done. Because the main thing is, have they done it properly? Have yes. is it rigorous enough? Has it got a lot of bias? So those are the things that you really need to be mindful. Of. And that's why a systematic review. Its advantages are that before they publish it, they will somebody would have seen that they have limited the bias. So there's less bias in in the results. They've already rejected studies that were not fitting or didn't meet the criteria. The conclusions are usually that's why more reliable and accurate. So you can take that. So so say, for example, if you wanted to do a research on some particular issue, the first thing we do is we go and look for whether someone else has done a systematic review on that topic. And so in that systematic review, there'll be some gaps that they identify in the research. And are we actually meeting those gaps or has someone else already done what we are aiming to do? So those are the kind of things that we use it for, for reviewing the literature. And it's really good because it'll always have a collection of all the articles that were released when it was being written. So there's always a paper. So by the time it gets published, it takes a year and a half, sometimes more. But if you use a systematic review, you... Kind of bridge that delay between research and practice, because you've suddenly got a collection of articles and you can use it straight away into practice. and that's why that's an advantage. It's very systematically done, of course, so you know that the results are precise. So they appraise all the articles. So they if they've picked say thirty articles in the systematic review, each article will be appraised using some rigorous tool. Mm. and then they will come up with yes what are the advantages what are the plus points what are the negatives here and then they will put it all together for you so they do all the work for you so in fact we are very grateful for systematic reviews.
1: <laughs> oh, it sounds sense. wonderful and I think Sarah and I were already reflecting even just on introductions or the literature review part of any article we're like this is yeah. great because they have summarized some of the researchers that have Gone before but a systematic review then just takes it to the next level that they really have searched for everything and really analyzed as you say and gone well this is good research this is not so good research
2: so when you look at a
1: systematic review it's
2: important for you to know how to evaluate it so not all maybe the top end being mindful what what was their question so these steps that i said to you like have a clear aim have clear inclusion exclusion criteria present all the risks, all of those are real ways in which we evaluate a systematic review, whether it was good or whether it's done rigorously and whether we can use it for practice.
1: Mm, no, that's excellent. And so I think you sort of answered this, but when we look at that hierarchy of evidence, a systematic yeah. review is pretty well at the pinnacle mm-hmm. of that. Why is that at the pinnacle?
2: even above the systematic review is a meta-analysis so the
1: meta-analysis is an
2: analysis of systematic reviews but a systematic review it only includes studies that are done with a particular rigor so Mm -hmm. in in the very past there used to be only rcts but now in certain areas of practice we don't have enough rcts and so there's been a variation in systematic reviews would include qual or quant studies that doesn't mean that they don't have rigor. It means that, for example, we're doing a systematic review of peer support interventions for parents of children with disabilities, but there's no RCT in that area. So obviously there's no systematic review with RCTs. So the next best we found were we found some systematic reviews that picked up pre-post data studies or multiple time points. So studies like that captured data across multiple time points. Yep. So repeated measures kind of studies. So they were included in, in such systematic reviews. So they may not be the top end, but they may still be done well, they're rigorous, and they still inform practice. Some areas of practice, there's a real high number of RCTs. Like if it was a big drug trial, for example, yes. Yep. it's easier to do or like the COVID vaccine or something like that. They had to do rapid RCTs to know whether it, it would work. So for that, you need to have a control. You need to have, like, you know, the blinded control. Mm -hmm. You need to have placebos. But. And occupational therapy you can't do it for every single topic we have very good systematic reviews in ot so that's why they're considered top end is because the rigor with which they're performed so you've yeah. got to follow the protocol and you're quite sure they'll tell you what protocol they followed in oh. the study you need to read read their method section that how did they go about the lab did they have a clear aim and questions and what did they include in their criteria was the search done with the appropriate databases so how many databases they're not just google scholar how many papers get rejected before they make it because of lack of rigor especially in the high-end journals they will be really rigorously reviewed so you know that they look for databases they will look for other important sources did they look at gray literature did they look at book chapters i don't know whatever they want to include and if they want, did yes or no, why and why did they do that? So they've given yeah. you clear reasoning. So that's really important that, like, you know, there's some data sources that we always look for, like the Medline, Cochrane, but then we'll say we only included, we didn't include grey literature, we didn't include foreign language, things like that. Yeah. So one more important thing is the methodological quality of the, the papers that they've included. So was that assessed? So what they do is they assess. Every paper that they pick for the systematic review gets assessed or critiqued. Yes. And they'll give you a table somewhere in the review where they've critiqued
1: the articles. Yes. And, and they so will... that's why it's at that higher yes. level because yes. they've done all that critiquing and then they've for drawn you. it all together. And mm-hmm. as you say, they are only including articles that have that rigor and fit a cr- certain criteria. It was interesting what I found about the systematic review that Sarah and I reviewed as part of this episode. I know we talked about qualitative and quantitative being as valid as each other, but there was still this thing in my head of like, oh, no, but quantitative its actually real numbers, so maybe it's just a little bit more valuable than qualitative. And so with systematic reviews, as, as you say, a step below meta-analysis, but being at the top of that hierarchy, I just assumed that all systematic reviews were quantitative, and maybe this is just showing my ignorance, but yeah. what was really interesting about this particular one, it was actually, even though it was a systematic review really high up in that uh, hierarchy, it was qualitative because the articles they reviewed were so different they couldn't find a way to analyse yeah. them. But yeah. exactly as you say, that doesn't make it in any less valid
2: yeah yes there's a things to consider so if there's nothing else available they probably went for that which will still a lot of re- researchers will not say that that's you know that's the high-end systematic review but we know when we practice in peds that there are some areas of practice that don't have that many mm. and what you're talking about is the heterogeneity or having homogeneous articles so all the articles need to follow the same things and they probably didn't so why did they pick those articles why did they not exclude the qualitative studies they would have given you a reason Mm -hmm. and they would have given you some reason like in that systematic way. i know that they tell you why they picked those articles because those articles had similar aims to what their systematic reviews aim was those articles had similar age groups or similar issues feeding when that happens then they try to make it homogeneous in on that level we i'm finding that people are picking more and more qualitative studies alongside quantitative studies and not just rcts like when i started research it was only rcts but now any rigorous quantitative studies are included. Some have even included single case study, which I find, like, you know, interesting. But anyway.
1: Is is there anything else you want to add about systematic review for today? Because that's a really great overview. No,
2: that's really good. I, I would just encourage people to not be afraid of systematic reviews but actually use them to guide practice because it's a fast way fast tracking your research to practice because someone else has done all this work for you oh. and so now you you can say and if it's published in a journal so look for you know we've talked about the impact factor of journals look for the the journal rigor as well and if it's published in one of those you can be quite sure that they've done the due diligence and oh. that the systematic review is saying what it means to say and what I like
1: as well though is that so I agree with everything you're saying but I also like that you gave us some almost like touch points for us to just do our own check and say okay this is what I'm sort of looking for and this is yeah that was yeah
2: yeah so I hope that was helpful it's very general but I think if you want more specific as I said go and read a little bit more nowadays you can do easily go and do a google search and they'll give you lots of there's lots of youtube on on google that teach you how what a statistic means or what a p-value means and things like that so
1: Mm -hmm. yeah that's something that as over our time with you dr new we'll learn more and more (laughs) yes (laughs) yes look it's a pleasure it's an absolute pleasure for me yes and so speaking of that actually obviously as our listeners know this is fairly new podcast we've only we're only a few episodes in but we had our first apple podcast review and because you were mentioned anew i thought i'd do the shout out we're trying to get into a little bit of habit of doing shout outs to people who leave us lovely reviews and so i thought i'd do it with you instead of with sarah so this one was from 16th of august 2022 from kids and co lab ot And the title is Candid, Warm and Informative, and it's a five-star review, and I'll just read it. So it says, this is the podcast I didn't know I needed. As a fellow pediatric OT, I'm absolutely loving having Mim and Sarah review these articles and share their real-world experience with applying the research into reality. Also, love listening to the Ask a New segment, because let's be honest, the section of my brain for research terms and critiques is pretty dusty all these years later. Do yourself a favor and follow this podcast.
2: So a beautiful
1: review. Thanks, kids and co. Thank you. you. That's wonderful. (laughs) And you have a great time in Paris. Yes. I can't wait. Tomorrow I
2: fly out. So thank you for this opportunity. Yes.
0: (laughs) And we will see you. We'll speak to you next term. And our listeners. No worries. Thanks, ma'am. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. We're excited to announce the date
1: of our first live podcast in which you can join us. This will involve us interviewing Pippa Van Wyck, a paediatric occupational therapist, and she has extensive experience and passion in the area of feeding, and she picked one of our research articles this term. Pippa will share insights into her work as a feeding therapist and help us understand how her article of choice has shaped her clinical work. We're holding the podcast recording on Wednesday the 7th of September 2022 at 8pm Brisbane time and we'd love you to submit your clinical questions beforehand. So that we can send them on to Pippa, and you can do that by emailing us at reality at exceptional-kids.net. So that's research, reality at exceptional-kids.net. And you will have the opportunity to ask questions on the night. But if you can send the questions, that means people will be able to prepare and answer those questions more thoroughly. So remember that this is a complimentary invitation for our listeners out there who have listened and supported us for the first term of our podcast. So thank you and tell others about the opportunity. If you can't make it on that particular evening, a recording will be released on the podcast. So don't worry, you will not miss out. Details of signing up for that are available in our show notes and on both our Facebook page and Facebook group. We love providing this podcast to you free to enable you to put great research into reality for your families. We would love to engage with our listeners more and if possible, have you support our podcast. There's a number of ways you can do this. One, tell your friends and colleagues about us. We are aimed at occupational therapists, but some of our topics are certainly relevant for other professions as well. Two, rate and review us on your podcast app. This helps others find the podcast. Three, email us if you like at researchandreality, that's R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H-A-N-D-R-E-A-L-I-T-Y at exceptional-kids.net. Check out our Facebook page where you'll be kept up to date with all our news, www.facebook.com researchandrealityot research and reality OT. That's research, search A N D reality OT. You can also become a Patreon supporter from as little as a dollar a month. This podcast takes time. So if you'd like to support us, you can when you support us through Patreon, you get extra perks as well for a dollar a month you get to be a research rookie and get access to our closed Facebook group. It's different from the page, as the group allows you to interact with ourselves and each other to share about articles that we review and much more. For $10 a month, you get to be a research roadie and you get access to the closed Facebook group, get a blank critique form and a copy of the article in advance, if copyright permits, and a transcript of our podcast, so you don't have to frantically take notes while listening. You'll also get access to our bonus episode each term where we interview an expert in that term's topic who has picked one of the articles. And for $15 a month, you are a research rock star and you get the benefits of the research rookie and research roadie, but you don't just get a recording of the bonus episode, you get to be part of it live and post your questions to our expert in real time. You can sign up through Patreon by going to patreon.com researchandrealityot.com. That's research, A-N-D, realityot.com. So there's heaps of ways to get involved, support us, and engage with the Research and Reality podcast more. As our first supporters, we'd like to thank you for listening and give you the Research Rockstar Perks for free. Just email us your details and you'll get all the Research Rockstar Perks for free the rest of this year, that's 2022, including being part of our bonus episode on the OT role in feeding therapy with Pippa Van White. After this term, though, we'll be making the Facebook group a closed group, so get in quick. And feel free to still financially support us via Patreon for the rest of this year if you wish.